Hello and welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is Journeys from the Past, and my name is Andy Davis. The purpose of this podcast is to inspire listeners to courageous sacrificial actions, to make progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of evangelism and missions. We do this by learning the stories of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the past. Now, last time we were talking about the growth and the development of the Roman papacy, the bishop of Rome and the power of the Roman papacy that led eventually over a thousand years to the Protestant Reformation and to the modern world that we know now. How is it that the humility and the Christ-like servant attitudes of the apostles, uh, including Peter, should develop to the point where we have uh, a grandiose palace with gold and silver and the finest artwork in Rome and individuals who were the most powerful people of their generation in Europe, the Roman Pope, dominating the political scene, dominating the religious scene, uh, running so many aspects of European life. How did that journey occur? Now, we began last time by tracing out the career of a man known as Gregory the Great, one of the most influential popes of all time. We're going to pick up the story now uh, from the point that we left off. After Gregory's death, his successors as pope only built upon and expanded the precedent of political and worldly power and the theological themes that Gregory had laid out, as we described last time. Popes would appeal to certain kings for military help, and they would receive it. In return, the popes would promise spiritual blessings and freedom from spiritual curses. The genuine fear that all European Christian kings had of eternal hell made these constant twin threats of personal excommunication and interdiction, namely the removal of priestly services in their nation made those threats very real. The intoxication of power that the popes received as a result only led to more and more worldly power. The selling of spiritual blessings through indulgences and of spiritual offices called simony uh, led to ever-increasing wealth pouring into the coffers of the Vatican. This descent was confirmed and hastened by a man named Hildebrand, who in the year 1073 was elected Pope, changing his name to Gregory VII. He served as Pope until 1085 and claimed unprecedented power for the papacy. He had a conception of a Christian commonwealth under the total control of the Pope. He did not consider the church and state equal, but asserted that the temporal power, what Augustine called the city of man, was totally subordinate to the spiritual power, what Augustine called the city of God. He abolished the right of kings to invest people as priests and threatened with excommunication any king who did it and any people who went to such priests for ministry. Since almost all of Europe's kings were deeply committed to the practice of establishing their own priests, Gregory VII was basically declaring war on them. This led to direct conflict between Gregory VII and Henry IV of England. Gregory excommunicated Henry IV, 
who by various political pressures was forced to yield to the Pope. He traveled to Canossa, a castle in the mountains of northern Italy in January of 1077. He appeared before the Pope dressed as a penitent. And the Pope made him stand in the snow for three days begging for forgiveness before he was finally absolved of his sins and allowed back into the communion of the church. This kind of political and economic power made the Roman Catholic popes the most powerful and wealthiest men in Europe in the Middle Ages and greatly corrupted the church. Yet, under this corrupt umbrella, there can be no doubt that the Holy Spirit continued to apply the genuine gospel to individual elect persons in every generation and in every nation in Europe throughout the Middle Ages. We will meet them in heaven. We will get to hear their testimonies. We will see revealed by God the manner of their service to King Jesus. Now let's talk about Charlemagne and the concept of Christendom, which fits into the same type of pattern. On April 25th, the year 799, Pope Leo III was assaulted by a band of armed men and kidnapped to a Greek monastery. It was a mutiny against his corrupt power, led by uh, officials loyal to his papal predecessor, Adrian I. They were outraged by the reasonable charges against Leo III, including perjury and adultery. Leo's supporters found out where he was being held, and they rescued him. But there were riots in the streets against him, and Leo needed outside help. He needed outside protection. So he appealed to the Christian king of the Franks, Charles the Great, whom we know as Charlemagne. Charles crossed the Alps with an army, confronted the Pope concerning these charges, and then received Leo's solemn oath that he was innocent. Then on Christmas Day, the year 800, Charles came to St. Peter's, the Pope's cathedral in Rome, for a service of worship. At the end of that service, the Pope approached Charles with a massive golden crown in his hands and placed it on the head of Charles, King of the Franks. The assembled people declared to Charles, the most pious, crowned Augustus by God, to the great peacemaking emperor, long life and peace. The Pope then prostrated himself before him. Charlemagne was the king of effectively a restored Christian Roman Empire. For many years, the Franks had been the most powerful Christian nation in Europe. Charles's grandfather, Charles Martel, had saved Europe from being overrun by the crushing power of Muslim Arabs who had swept across the Straits of Gibraltar on into Spain and then moved over into France to try to conquer Europe. But they themselves were crushed by Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer, uh, at the Battle of Tours in the year 732, one of the most significant battles in the history of the world. Charles's father, Pepin the Short, had received from the Pope political support for his claim to be king of the Franks. In return, Pepin had given the Pope military protection from the Lombards and had donated land seized from the Lombards to the papacy as a constant stream of revenue for the papacy. 
Pepin's son, Charles, continued this pattern of this for that, quid pro quo, and was crowned emperor by the Pope. Now, Charlemagne had a threefold vision for his realm, military power to crush his enemies, religious power to save the souls of his people, and intellectual power to feed souls and minds with the truth. This union of church and state into a welded whole was called Christendom. It flies directly in the face of Christ's assertion when he said to Pontius Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. That was not the kind of kingdom Jesus was building. His kingdom was based on truth. For this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So Jesus' kingdom advances based on truth, not based on the power of the sword. John 18, 36. But it was in this world that both kings and their subjects functioned throughout the Middle Ages in Europe. A wedding together of church and state. What we know as Christendom. Now, one of the worst parts of this union of church and states, state that ever came out in the Middle Ages were the Crusades. The Crusades. The kings of Christendom and the popes of the Roman Catholic Church sought to construct a perfect society on earth in the 12th and 13th centuries. By that time, the church in the West had reached a staggering level of power and wealth. Some like Bruce Shelley, have a generally positive view of this achievement, likening it to the majesty of the soaring cathedrals. He quoted Sugar, the abbot of St. Denis, who between the year 1137 and the year 1144 oversaw the work of rebuilding the abbey church in that location near Paris. Quote, I seem to find myself, as it were, in some strange part of the universe, which was neither wholly of the baseness of the earth, nor wholly of the serenity of heaven. But by the grace of God, I seemed lifted up in a mystic manner from this lower toward the upper sphere. End quote. Bruce Shelley used these words, lift, reach, aspiration. These are the terms for the age. The Middle Ages were not all dark, as the hundreds of Gothic cathedrals so readily testify. So he gives that image of a cathedral soaring to the heavens, established on rock with light flowing in the windows. So Bruce Shelley speaks very positively of that, that phase of time. But issuing from this vision came what missiologist Ralph Winter calls, quote, the most massive and tragic misconstrual of Christian mission in all of history. There is a twin backdrop of the Crusades worth mentioning. First is the appearance of Islam. Beginning with the visions of Muhammad, an Arab merchant, around the year 610, Muhammad claimed to have been visited by the angel Gabriel in the cave of Hira near Mecca. The angel had commanded him to recite from which Muslims believe the Quran came. Within decades of Muhammad's death in the year 632, Islam began spreading, first across the Arabian Peninsula, then northward throughout Palestine toward Constantinople, where it was checked by the Eastern Roman, the Byzantine Empire. 
Then it spread westward across North Africa. It advanced by uh, the appeal of monotheism and also by the simple precepts of works salvation. Also, however, by the threat of the sword. Submit or die is essentially consistent with Islam. The word Islam means submission. And a Muslim is one who submits. So fundamentally, it's submit or die, though such a concept should have no place at all in Christian missions. Beyond this is the history of the Vikings and Christianity. So we have Islam with its advance by the sword across North Africa. And then we have the Vikings. Now the Vikings were raiders from the Northlands whose low-draft longboats were amazingly seaworthy and also enabled them to travel up major rivers like the Thames in England and the Seine in France. The first Viking raid struck England in the year 793, raiding the monastery at Lindisfarne. The glittering wealth of monasteries, coupled with the inability and unwillingness of monks to fight off these attacks with the sword, made the monasteries particularly attractive to the Vikings. Lots of gold and no military opposition. For this reason, Irish monks regularly prayed, From the wrath of the Northmen, O Lord, deliver us. The Vikings continued their terrifying raids all over Europe for almost three centuries, greatly affecting the histories of all European nations. But some key Viking leaders were eventually captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ and by the clearly superior society of Christianity, of Christendom, that Charlemagne had established. One of the most exciting conversion stories from this era concerns Viking band leader Olaf Tryggvason, who was born in the year 963 and died around the year 1000, who was raiding the Isles of Scilly off the coast of England. He had heard of a Christian prophet on one of those islands, a hermit who was living in seclusion there. And by this hermit, uh, an amazing prediction of a mutiny by his men came immediately true. Olaf went back to the hermit, once the prophecy had been confirmed, and was quickly converted to the Christian faith and baptized. Olaf eventually became king of Norway. Similarly, Olaf Haraldsson, born in the year 995 and died in the year 1030, raided a series of Christian monasteries including some in France, in Rouen. There he learned about the enlightened reign of Charlemagne and decided Christianity must be the right religion for Norway. But like Charlemagne himself, both Olaf's advanced Christianity by the sword and similar threats of convert or die. So, in the year 1095, when the Eastern Emperor Alexis I, the Byzantine Emperor in the eastern part of the, the Roman Empire, Eastern Emperor Alexis I, when he was threatened by Muslim Seljuk Turks, he sent out an urgent appeal for help. Pope Urban II called for the First Crusade to try to retake the Holy Land. The use of the sword was to advance the Kingdom of Christ in their conceptions. And that was very familiar to the kings of Christendom and especially to the Viking converts. Ralph Winter has made the observation that all of the early crusades were led predominantly by ex-Vikings. The promise to the crusaders was a clear mixture of both earthly and heavenly rewards, 
Pope Urban, had promised all crusaders full forgiveness of all sins, as well as abundant plunder. Monks like Bernard of Clairvaux added the power of ecstatic visions and impassioned preaching. In all, there were seven crusades from the end of the 11th through the end of the 13th centuries. And they did staggering levels of harm to the reputation of Christianity. And that level of harm has continued even to this present day. Jews were slaughtered. Muslims also slaughtered under the crusaders' cry of Deus Vult, God wills it. Even Constantinople itself was conquered and sacked by crusaders. The Holy Land, including Jerusalem, was indeed conquered in the name of Christ and held for almost two centuries until the year 1291. But the whole thing was an abomination and a failure to understand how little Christ is concerned with conquering and holding geographical territories by the sword and how much he is concerned with winning people's souls by the truth and by love. Toward the end of the 13th century, an amazing missionary thinker named Raymond Lull, born in the year 1232, died in the year 1312, rose up to challenge the entire premise of the Crusades. This is what he, he wrote. I see many knights going to the Holy Land beyond the seas and thinking they can acquire it by force of arms. But in the end, all are destroyed before they attain that which they think to have. Whence it seems to me that the conquest of the Holy Land ought not to be attempted except in the way of Christ and his apostles, the way that they acquired it, by love and prayers and by the pouring out of tears and blood. Now let's turn away from the Crusades to scholasticism. Scholasticism, a theological movement in the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages have often been called the Dark Ages because of the regression of general society away from the heights of achievement that occurred under the Roman Empire and the constant disdain shown by the conquering barbarians for book learning. The Goths, the Vandals, the Lombards, the Huns, the Vikings, and all the rest tended to burn the scrolls they found in libraries of monasteries rather than learn how to read them. We have already mentioned the vital role played by Irish monasteries in preserving classical knowledge, and not just the Irish monasteries, but many others across Europe, preserving classical knowledge. But life seemed to have regressed to a brutish level, and the dark shadows of ignorance and pagan, pagan superstitions often obscured true knowledge. Even the colorful stained glass windows in the soaring cathedrals that depicted key scenes from the Bible tended to obscure the truth rather than teach it to the illiterate peasants who came to worship within. How well did the stained glass artisans actually know the text of the Bible? How well did their stained glass windows accurately depict the Bible stories? Even if they did know the scriptures perfectly, how could stained glass pictures depict the logic of Paul's epistle to the Romans or the theology of John's gospel? But with the rise of these massive cathedrals came schools connected with them in which scholars sought to impart knowledge to eager students. These schools eventually became universities whose central goal was to understand and explain the truths of God found in the Christian religion. 
The temporal beginning of scholasticism cannot be perfectly established, but it was somewhere around the start of the 12th century and continued throughout for roughly the next six centuries. These schools began with the goal of training parish priests, but they were eventually extended to all people. The curriculum was limited to grammar, rhetoric, logic, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. They sought to weave these seven liberal arts into one cohesive system of philosophy. It was centered around dynamic teachers whose reputations drew students like magnets draw iron. They were called the schoolmen or scholastics. The most famous early schoolman was Peter Abelard, born in the year 1079, died in the year 1142, whose classic treatise on intellectual inquiry called Sic et Non, it's Latin for yes and no, it consisted of 158 questions emerging from Christian thought and answered them with conflicting quotations from the scriptures and the church fathers and pagan philosophers. These created a relentless pattern of asking yet more questions, always seeking deeper and deeper truth. The peak of scholasticism came in the person of Thomas Aquinas, born in the year 1224 and died in the year 1274, whose Summa Theologica sought to harmonize reason with God's revelation in Scripture. Thomas saw no essential contradiction between human reason and divine revelation, between good philosophy and theology. He introduced Aristotle's philosophy to explain the mystery of the Eucharist with the innovation of transubstantiation. Thomas also greatly defended the semi-Pelagian theology that had human sinners cooperating with the grace of God in their own salvation. And he supported as well the sale of indulgences that had first come in to allow non-combatant Christians to buy into the Crusades by financing a soldier to take their place. Thomas extended the concept to salvation, saying there is such a thing as a treasury of merits built up by the warrior saints of old, by that we mean spiritual warfare, like monks and, and other holy people. They built up a treasury of merits, spiritual warriors for Christ. They had done more than was necessary for the salvation of their own souls, so they left a surplus of good deeds of merit in somewhat of a spiritual box for common Christians to access. The Pope had the authority to release these additional spiritual merits, and he can do it, and he could do it, however he chose. Indulgences, which were pieces of paper which you could buy, you spent money on them, and they had writing on it, giving a certain measure of forgiveness of sins or complete absolution or whatever the Pope wanted. Indulgences were an easy way to raise money while meeting an intense spiritual need of the people. But the whole theology was corrupt, as Martin Luther and the Reformers would make plain in the 16th century. So, despite its weaknesses, scholasticism fostered the spirit of questioning by the church-based academic community that would be essential to the reformation of life and doctrine that the Roman Catholic Church so desperately needed. So as we conclude today, as we've looked over the Middle Ages, we've looked over some of the corruptions and also some of the sovereign power of God in orchestrating life and preserving the gospel and saving individual people from their sins through faith in Christ. As we, as we conclude today, I want you to go into your week 
knowing that there is nothing new under the sun. Whatever it is you are going through, there are Christians who have come before you, who have dealt with similar struggles, and through the power of Christ have overcome them, and you will also. We also know from Scripture that God went ahead of them and prepared good works for them to do in their generation, and they did them for the glory of God. In the same way, God has gone ahead of you and has prepared good works for you to do for His glory. So go do them by the same power of the Spirit that was in them. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.